Hello, and welcome, listeners, to the second episode of the Aaron Fox Chef Private Company Strategies podcast. Your hosts for today are myself, Bill D'Angelo, a partner at Aaron Fox Chef in the Los Angeles office. Today, we're joined by our fellow partner uh, at Aaron Fox Chef from the Chicago office, Sarah Severson. Um, and we're here today to talk about um, clients, private company clients in particular, and their advisors and the need to focus on incapacity. And, um, and Sarah's going to delve into this topic in depth. Uh, we'll go through some examples and discuss why this topic is often so neglected or, and or avoided. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much, Bill and Adam. I'm happy to be here. Um, so I've been doing trust and estates work for about 25 years, which implies that I help clients minimize taxes and right. effectively transfer wealth to the next generation. And, and I do do those things as right. part of my practice, but just as important as helping clients structure their affairs to minimize tax is also helping clients to navigate the real life challenges that life throws at us. So many sure. of which impact either directly or indirectly the best of the estate plans. So these kinds of challenges range from divorce or creditor issues, addictions, conflicts between family members, business succession planning, a lot of these things that live underneath the private company's umbrella. And I often refer to these issues as the taboo issues that many lawyers okay. and their clients are uncomfortable discussing, right. which is precisely why I'm... I'm Grateful to have this platform with you, Adam and Bill, to discuss these sort of otherwise unspeakable topics. And I'm hoping today to shine some light on the important, and by the way, very common human behaviors that impact us. Um, and today the focus is on incapacity, how to talk about it, identify it, and be ready to act. Great. So should we dive right in? What what you I, I think you've you've outlined for us some ideas around what is incapacity, what the forms of incapacity are. Um, for those that are not familiar with the the legal term of art, incapacity, what is incapacity, and 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 in what flavors does a uh, an attorney in your position uh, or a client of yours um, often see this? You know, the first time, like what is incapacity? Um, you know, in plain mean, plain meaning, and then also from the the legal definition. Yeah, and and um, you know, starting at the basics is really important when it comes to this topic because you know, I could throw out a dozen or more quote unquote definitions of incapacity, right? So it's okay. you hear the word incapacitated, disabled, incompetent, impaired. You know, the American Medical Association has its own definition. Social Security Association has its own definition. America's Americans with Disabilities Act, World Health Organization, Merriam-Webster. Everybody has a different understanding and definition of incapacity, which is exactly why, in addition to being an uncomfortable topic to talk about, it's also it's difficult. Right. So. The, let's talk a minute about the flavors of incapacity, right? Um, first, there's physical. We can, more often than not, we can identify a physical incapacity or inability, right? Or disability. It's, it's the mental um, incapacity that, that can be tricky. Um, and we'll get into later in the session here, you know, some specifics associated with that. But most so Sarah, let me ask you a question. So yeah. on this first one on physical, is it, and I, what immediately came to my mind was something like a, a client or a colleague is in a coma and has been in a coma for a specific period of time, completely non-responsive. That would be a, a sort of very obvious, bright line, physical incapacity. Is that kind of what Absolutely. we'd be thinking about? Okay. Perfect example. Um, and that's also a great example of how you know, disability is not this static issue or incapacity is not a static issue. You could be in a coma for 30 days and that's and a temporary out. condition, right? Right. Another, right. another physical um, 
you know, readily apparent physical incapacity might be a, someone who suffers from a stroke. Right. That was my next thought. Yep. A slow walk out of that condition. It may right. be that, you know, on day one of the stroke, there's a loss of speech. There's a loss of use of, um, you know, paralysis on one side. And six months later, the person may have rehabbed from that condition. Right. So it's not Got a it. permanent disability. Okay, great. Um, another great example of physical and also mental is, is the dementia and addiction. I'm going to call those flavors of incapacity progressive, right? Mm. They start off um, at sort of Wild. a seed of disability, and then they grow into something that is more protracted, more chronic, and continually getting worse. Right. And See how that could be challenging then because you don't know where the line is how do you figure out where the line is is that is that something you deal with all the time so um and we as estate planners right we need to be armed and ready for those assessments so when i get into some of the diagnostic um discussion in in a bit i'll tell tell the listeners you know some of the tools that we use as estate planners to sort of assess that situation because it could be um, you know, I have a client who, if I talk to him after 10 a.m. in the morning, I, I know he's been drinking. That's when he gets started <sighs> on drinking. So, um, you know, I've got to talk to him early in the mornings or else I may as well wait till the next day. So that is a disease, right? That is progressive and will, um, I'm going to make the hopefully unfair assumption that it's only going to get worse. Right. Right. Now you, so, you, you, uh, I'm sorry, keep going, Sarah. No, no, no. I was just going to say, so, you know, we've got this, when we talk about, Hey, is, is, is Adam incapacitated? You know, are we, we're immediately going to, okay, physically, is he, you know, able and, 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 you know, able-bodied. Um, but also on the mental side, um, you know, it, it, we talked about a moment ago, it could be a temporary condition. It could be a permanent um, condition. It could be progressive. It could also be acute, like the stroke, right? Um, right. right. But also within that bandwidth of mental capacity, there are two kind of sub flavors of that. There's contractual capacity, right? Which is just the minimal mental capacity that's required by law for someone to be a party to a contract to engage in a credit card transaction, you know, in their business and personal life to enter a marriage that's contractual capacity, right? Lower than that is what we as estate planners say, testamentary capacity. That's, you don't have to be able to, to identify a new spouse and go get married, but you need to be able to say, um, you know, who's your family? who are the natural objects of your bounty? What's the general size of your estate? Do you have $50 million or $5? And you have to know that when you're going in to talk to your lawyer, that you're disposing of your property. That is a lower threshold than contractual capacity. And a lot of folks are surprised to hear you could be adjudicated a disabled person with a guardianship and still have testamentary capacity. It's that much lower. So I have a question, Sarah. This has come up for me not recently, but in the mid 2000s, I, I did a series of transactions in Silicon Valley where I was representing the seller in a mergers and acquisitions transaction in which the client, in which there was an, a human individual person that was executing merger agreements. And the buyer asked me in what these deals don't happen this much anymore. But in, in, in those days, you would often get a, a requested opinion letter in connection with the transaction, the issue of shares, the authorization of the agreements. And I had one particular deal I remember where the buyer asked me to opine on the contractual capability from, a, from the perspective of incapacity. And I resisted and told them that I was not in a position to be an independent judge of incapacity, but it was, it was a real row. Like we fought about this for like over a week and they, they really wanted us to opine as to the, the, the capacity of the, 
uh, executive signing the agreements. And I said, I'm just not going to do it. But I'm just curious, do you run into anything like that where you're asked to make an assessment as a lawyer for a client? Interesting and very good question. The answer is yes, I'm asked. And the the answer I give is no, I won't do it. So two different issues, right? As estate planners, you know, we can't um, sit with a client. And if we have a suspicion that they don't have capacity, right? Um, we can't ask them to sign documents. So we are Got doing it. these assessments ourselves of, um, you know, whether the client has capacity, but as in terms of providing a legal opinion as to whether there's capacity that in my view should only come from a treating physician if it's being got it pressed upon. Okay. um you know so that or a court determination that there's a lack of capacity there got it um, now that that issue has gotten trickier since hipaa because you can't just walk into the person's you know physician's office and say, give me a letter. Um, So, you know, there are things we can do in these contexts, whether it's the business context or the estate planning context to make people aware of, you know, a pending incapacity or an issue of incapacity so that we're armed and ready when that request comes in. Absolutely. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. I, I, I'm glad that my instinct to not respond to that request was the right one from your perspective. Yeah. I wish I had had your counsel. In order to dish that one out, I'm afraid, Bill. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, you know, we, we've talked about uh, sort of defining the, the different types of incapacity. Um, what are the legal slash business contexts in which um, – capacity is is behind the purpose of what we're discussing what are the, what are some of the the legal events that that are touched by incapacity yeah so it could be everything from the things we just mentioned writing a will signing a contract uh, making personal decisions right maybe that's a change of your domicile you know you're mm-hmm. moving from one state to another making any sort of financial decisions but um, more specifically, sort of serving on a board of directors or operating a business, you know, right. being the CEO. Um, I, I mentioned earlier, social security disability. That's a completely different analysis than should you be sitting on the board or, or being a CEO because social security disability has its own set of standards of what it means to be disabled. Um, voting, driving, getting married, getting divorced. Um, requesting or refusing medical treatment. Those are all going to have their own set of rules around is Bill incapacitated for purposes of making this decision? So it's really important to know sort of who's deciding this and where do those rules live, right? Right. So, you know, your very astute question from a moment ago was who decides if this guy who's about to sign this contract is is incapacitated is incapacitated in that case i would refer you to his physician now right. again hipaa is going to be a, an issue um but can you sarah can, with hipaa can you sign an, an advanced waiver that says something like you know in the event that my capacity is challenged um i i you know here is a, a written consent to consult with my personal physician are those legally effective if they're given in advance they are and in fact many of our corporate clients use those um from the board of directors standpoint that when you join a board you are signing those advanced you know advanced waivers or you're executing an authorization and, and consent form to access digital information, to access medical records, um, also agreeing to recuse yourself from decisions related to the person's, you know, if you're the subject of an incapacity determination, you're making a, an advanced recusal from, from from participating. Sarah, is that's really interesting because I serve on several boards right now and have served on many in the past, and no one's ever handed me any kind of documentation like that. And wow. they're well represented by counsel too. So, so that speaks to the opening of this presentation, right? Which is yeah. people do not like to talk about this stuff. A, they don't think about it. B, most human beings 
even among us lawyers, do not like conflict, especially when right. it's messy stuff like this. So yeah. saying, hey, Bill. And there's, e- and, and there's ego involved, right? There, even oh, even when you're mildly incapacitated, ego is a, often a barrier to solving these problems, I would imagine. It, it is. And it's interesting you say that, Bill, because it's the last thing to go. Biologically, we are so wired to protect our self-image to the outside world. You know, and I'll, I'll give an example. I had a, a gentleman who served on a board for me with me for 20 plus years, and he started to leave his briefcase, his coat, his umbrella. He would just walk out of the board meeting without any of those things, despite oh, man. what was going on weather-wise or, you know, and he wouldn't come back for the briefcase. Wow. But he was able to fake it, right? For and a long time. put on this proud posture um, because that's what biologically was the last, the last, um, you know, characteristic for him to drop. Yeah. So it's, it's a very cunning disease, especially when we were talking about like dementia and Alzheimer's, because that right. protective barrier, that pride, if you will, or ego is the last to drop. Are there specific skills, maybe they're psychological, not legal skills, that you developed over your practice to address this last holdout of the individual will, which is the ego? I mean, how do we is it is it all in the pre-planning or is there a certain is there certain advice you could give to maybe myself and the other partners listening and our clients to how to address that ego component? Because I think that you know, my, what my immediate reaction is, is if someone has got a strong ego and they're confronted, they're an executive, successful executive in their life or on a board, um, they're going to be very defensive is, is my guess is, is even if you are incapacitated, then my imagination is that they'll be very defensive. I'm curious, like what psychological tricks or skills you may have uh, developed to handle high powered individuals and their resistance to addressing these things. Yep. So that's a, it's fascinating um, line of discussion there. And I will, I park back to when my dad, when I was 11 years old, told me, I can tell you exactly where we were standing, that the key to life is you have to allow the other person to save face. Right. Mm. And I had just experienced him in a business transaction that I was tagging along with for whatever reason, I was 11 years old. And he had sort of allowed somebody to backpedal and exit the scene without humiliating himself. So, right? so a certain level of compassion, it sounds like. 100%. I mean, yeah. it's treating other people the way you would want to be treated. And, and a lot of folks, a lot of these guys are entrepreneurs, businessmen. They've been the CEO since they were, you know, in their mind's eye, five years old. And now they're right. 85 years old and they still want to be the CEO. So. Letting, um, letting things be their idea, you know, maybe it's a move to a, um, you know, I'm no longer going to be chairman or I'm, I'm sorry, I'm no longer going to be CEO, but I might, might, might have an honorary chairman role on this board. Right. You know, offering some sort of soft landing or gentle exit is going to be much better received Um, especially if they can announce, you know, I'm retiring or I'm transitioning or I'm succession planning. You know, there are a lot of gentler ways. um, And you don't even have to call attention to the alleged incapacity. You can just talk about good succession planning. And maybe it's time for your 65-year-old son to take the reins because you're 80. (laughs) Right? So it can be not about the incapacity, but it, I would say that, you know, 75% of what we do is, is, comes from the emotional intelligence piece. Everything so we deal with. Yeah, I mean, that totally makes sense. And everything you said, it, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like uh, social common sense, but we don't <laughs> always think of it. But one, one follow-up question I had was, um, my guess is in most of these engagements, you represent the corporate entity. Um, do, do personal lawyers ever get involved in addition to personal physicians? So let's say you have a director, you, we represent the company, the board, you know, wants him to transition. Do you ever end up in disputes where the individual executive or shareholder or director has their own separate counsel and it becomes a legal negotiation? 
So I haven't had that actually happen. Um, normally when somebody is reaching, I mean, I can see the prospect of it happening, but normally when someone has reached that point where they are no longer able um, right. to make decisions, more often than not, Bill, I'm going to have, you know, like for the example I gave earlier, this this gentleman's wife was calling me saying, you know, Joe Smith is forgetting his briefcase, you know, wow. be on the lookout. So most people row in the same direction. The person's right. physician, it may be that they have a healthcare agent acting for them, which we'll talk about in a moment, um, where there's a an alignment between, you know, the fiduciaries that are sitting on the board who don't want to just oust people from the board, right? They don't, they're only doing it because they need to, not because they want to. And then the family and what's best for the for the person. So, Sarah, you you've you've alluded to this or, or used a couple of examples, but I'm I'm curious when incapacity becomes an issue, how do we know as counsel or you know co board members that our concerns are justified? We've talked about a few of the things that might um, alert us to there being a incapacity problem, but what what are some of the, the tools? both business and legal that uh, a board or executives can use to determine whether or not one of their colleagues um, is in fact suffering from either a mild or severe incapacity. Yeah. So spotting the issue, right. Is the, is the, is the challenge there? Um, You know, first of all, my answer, you know, 20 years ago would have been different because people weren't living as long. Right. Right. Medical advances mean that our bodies are living longer and our brains are have that much longer to deteriorate, right? So this is an increasing issue. Um, We talked a little bit about how the ego is stronger than the the mind and body. So there's this phenomenon of covering up a disability. So what I try to use as a tool is small talk. Okay. Um, And that could be a reference to the time of day, a reference to the year, a reference to who's the president, um, asking a question about, you know, oh, how, you know, how are your grandkids? How many again do you have? What are their ages? What are their birth dates? You know, probing questions. Um, There is something called a mini mental state examination. It goes by the acronym MMSE. Okay. have a list of sort of litmus test questions that you, you know, your subject doesn't even know he's being sort of quizzed as to his capacity because it's, you're couching it in small talk. Right. But right. If I walk into a room and, you know, I have a suspicion about a person or I'm called into a nursing home to oversee a document execution, this happens too. Right. So I know that they may be there because of mental frailty then I can ask things like, um, you know, how are you doing today? What did you do this morning? And if somebody right. said, well, I, you know, I, I plowed the fields and <laughs> bushed some corn, right. Then I know we're probably not signing not documents true. today. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that, that's why, um, you know, having some sort of formal process at play is more important than any given result and backing the truck up so that before people get to this point, they know there is a process in place for making these kinds of determinations as time goes on. And that needs to be an objective process. It needs to be a conflict free process. And we have to balance you know, privacy and the right of this person to privacy with enough transparency for an objective process to play out. So, you know, earlier we talked about what do you bake in to a board of directors system so that people can have access to the information, right? That they need if they're starting to get suspicious. Mm -hmm. So if in 2022, I sign an advanced directive or an advanced authorization form allowing you, Bill, to look at my medical records at some point in the future if you have concerns, then we're taking the conflict out of the here and now when I am actually at that point. So that's one 
solution in the board context. Another thing people do in the personal context is they sign something called a healthcare power of attorney or right. healthcare surrogate um, mm-hmm. form. That, you know, as an estate planner, we do those as part and parcel of every estate plan where, Bill, you're going to sign a, a document that's going to authorize another human being to make healthcare decisions for you on the one hand, property decisions for you on the other in the event of your incapacity. Now, there's a very important feature in those documents because it will say at the end of the document, this document becomes effective on blank. Right, right. And you can either say, upon my incapacity, or it takes effect immediately, right? And that's a very substantive provision of the document because if I have it kick in only when you are determined to be legally incapacitated, I haven't really accomplished much, have I? Because yeah. now I have to have that argument at the time. So, so what percentage of, of when you do these plans, what percentage of, of the clients are accept, are accepting of the solution that says you're going to agree completely ahead of time on as of the day you sign this agreement, these things can take place? What is what's the breakdown between that versus it, it's a springing um, mm-hmm. effect where it only works specifically when there's a later determination. Yeah. I can usually tell right when the person walks in the room, which way they're going to go. They're either okay. somebody that's really white knuckling for control or there's somebody that's open to a discussion about fiduciaries. Right. And by that, what I mean is your agent, the person you appoint is not there to do what he or she wants to do. They are, they have a fiduciary duty to you to do what's in your best interest. And if Adam and I go to my physician today and Adam and I, and they say to me, Sarah, do you want X treatment? And I say, no, I do not. And Adam says, I'm her healthcare power of attorney. Yes, she should have that. Physicians obviously, well, hopefully obviously <laughs> not going to listen because I have capacity to make that choice myself. Right. right? But right. If, if I was in a sketchier situation or starting to lose capacity, um, then maybe Adam would have a seat at that table to kind of contribute to the conversation and have access to the records. So um People need to be educated through the process, and they also need to be reminded that the status quo of, you know, making a, a determination at the time as to whether or not you're incapacitated is asking for a conflict or a discussion at the time, which is usually the last point in time that you want to be having that conversation. Right. So... You know, kind of going through to the next the next component of it, my understanding is people can be incapacitated for one purpose and not incapacitated for another purpose. Um, can you like give some examples of what those might be and 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 how the practitioner and the client navigate those differences? Yeah, and again, I I would sort of um, use as the primary example someone that is fully capable of signing a will, coming in and talking to me about their estate plan, telling me where they want their property to go, but is not able to make change for a dollar, right? Or um, run a business or, you know, maybe they signed up and bought, you know, 40 blenders on amazon.com the night before, right? right? So there are all flavors of mental challenges that would say this person probably not should not be conducting business and transacting, maybe right. not driving, but can still vote, can still right. get married, can still sign a will, right? I mean, we have these fundamental rights as human beings that are so precious to us that are represent our autonomy that we don't want to just have one blanket definition of what's capable and what's incapable because we strip away people's rights to things that, you know, are like life, liberty and pursuit of happiness. Right. So we have to have these sure. standards. Um, so Bill, maybe you shouldn't be running a, you know, running a board, but <laughs> you know, you ought to be able to, to participate in your day-to-day decisions. And I maybe should be able to give you a, a 
bank account with $5,000 that you can operate out of and walk around right. with some change in your pocket. You just can't be investing millions, right? right. So, so it's really important in this analysis to ask the question of, for what purpose are we trying to ascertain capacity? Because so, Sarah, if, if if we wanted to remove an officer or director, I mean, let's say that we're this, you know, Adam and I are the other members of the board. You're our counsel, and we come to you and we say, you know, we suspect um, board member X. Mm, he's not, he's not on the top of his game anymore. Um, he's the chairman. We don't think he should be the chairman anymore. Um, what are, what are the, what are some of the examples of steps that a, a well-advised board, uh, could take in that scenario where we had to remove an executive officer or an, another board member or even the chairman of the board? Yeah. So depending on how acute the situation is, right. If there's been a, you know, an obvious trauma or medical condition, like a, not unlike a stroke, um, there are oftentimes provisions in the documents or should be provisions in the documents that allow for, you know, um, a, a recess by that person, removal mm -hmm. of that person, you know, under the bylaws, or you simply, if you have the time and luxury, you could just wait until the next, you know, election of officers and directors and simply right. not vote the person back in. The problem with that answer, though, is it doesn't address what you're really getting at, which is what about the personal side of things, right? I mean, right. this has been the longstanding CEO of this board. How do you, in a gentler way than just, you know, calling a special meeting to remove this person, right? right? That doesn't feel good, so it probably won't happen. So we need a right. different way to approach it. And it could be, you know, contacting a family member or a loved one of that person and saying, look, we're concerned um, about this person. You know, again, you have to be mindful of your fiduciary duties and and not, not breach any uh, loyalty to your director by, by slandering him among family members or business associates. Right. But, that's where, again, real life kind of intervenes and you say, is there somebody we can talk to um, in that person's family to get a conversation? Do you, do you ever as counsel have that direct conversation with the potentially incapacitated individual? Is, is that a conversation that is put on to counsel or, is, or do we advise the board and then the board or another executive has that direct conversation with the potential incapacitated person? Typically the latter. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, normally the committees that I serve on when I'm on a board are the audit committee and the compensation committee, just because I'm generally an outside director, not mm -hmm. an insider. So I'm in these protective capacity committees. Um, my understanding is, is there, there, there can be a committee that specifically addresses incapacity and I'll certainly revisit this with the companies that I serve on, but uh, I've never seen, you know, what, what you might call an evaluation committee. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, how that might work? And is there a way we can structure the board to be and to anticipate this potential problem and conflict? Yeah. In fact, I just finished doing this for another client not that long ago where they did create a, an evaluation committee and, you know, again, due process is first and foremost and keeping integrity associated with the process is important. And basically there's an evaluation committee formed that evaluation committee provides a written report. Okay. To the general board saying we have concerns and Got it. then you know, the you know, if the, if the determination is we think, it, you know, X is incapacitated, then we start this process again. If there are advanced waivers in place, if there are HIPAA restrictions lifted, it becomes that much easier, right? And we would have that as part of the process as well. And then what happens is that evaluation committee says, we're going to get two physicians. In this example that, that 
I did. We had one had to come from Mayo Clinic. The other had to be somebody that has treated the person in the prior three years. Got it. If that those sets of physician comes back and says, this person is incapacitated, X, in our example, can appeal that decision, right? Get another set of doctors to look at him. If they come right. back again and say, yep, you know, we think you're incapacitated, then the, you know, the board basically removes that person and right. X would have the ability if he felt he was ready to be restored or ready to be reevaluated for capacity, he would have the right to trigger that reevaluation at any time. Got it. So that is something that I see most often is some sort of mechanism for getting an evaluation done, having the determination made, and then, you know, having some mechanism for restoration when that person, if that person regains capacity. Um, sort of the the jewel in the crown, I, I would imagine, in this discussion is what are the pre-planning tools that we have so that, you know, someone listens to this podcast are like, oh, my gosh, that sounds exactly like my problem or I know that this could be a problem. What are the things we can offer as lawyers and that you offer in your practice since we're showcasing you? What are those advanced things that that you see as the most effective tools or range of tools? Yeah, and the, the beauty here is they're really simple. Um, we can all take these steps to be better prepared. So the first, the first recommendation I have is corral and locate all your documents. Okay. By all your documents. I mean, the estate planning documents, the corporate documents, the bylaws, anything and everything that might, you know, your trust documents, gather those because the first the first step is review those documents to see if there is any instruction on this issue of incapacity. Got it. And then what's fascinating is you'll see discrepancies between those sets of documents, right? Right. And so the idea is let's reconcile. Those need to be amended in a holistic way so that the trusts can be more um, like the bylaws and you don't have thing, documents working at cross purposes. Got so it. number one, locate the documents. Number two, review the documents for clear instructions and a uniform, non-discretionary process. So Got it. if you have, you know, triggering disability clauses that are different, you know, in all the different documents, that's going to cause a problem. That piece, I think, is the is probably the most critical, that diagnostic phase, because the good news for the listeners is once we've identified what do these documents say and how do they actually work in this instance, if at all, because maybe they're right. void any reference to capacity, then we know what our marching orders are. We can go and create those instructions. And then more, probably most importantly in terms of next steps is to plan ahead. Not plan ahead for next year. It's way, way, way ahead. So make sure that everybody knows what the rules of engagement are. Right. Demonstrate that the rules are going to be applied consistently across everybody. Because remember, when you're in that situation and you're the target of this analysis, you're going to feel like it's a personal attack. So if we can all know, oh no, every single new board member that comes in Here's the same thing and gets the same set of documents and the same, you know, set of instructions, then it's much easier to solicit from them those advanced authorizations for HIPAA, access to digital information, the voluntary recusal. Now we were not, it's not as though um, it's a personal attack at the time that the assessment is being made. So, Got it. so having a clean conscience on this. Um, is possible when you've applied things uniformly and everybody's treated the same way. And you're probably not going to convince the alleged disabled person at the time that he's being treated fairly. That shouldn't be the objective. Right. Because he's not going to treat, you know, he's not going to hear it that way. But you will know as a fiduciary or as counsel that you have, you know, you have applied a uniform process and that's what will get us to the right result. Got it. 
So what, what, and, you know, thinking about some of these things from my own experience, I mean, obviously it sounds like my director experience has been a little bit on the light side in this area, but what are, what are some of the differences between, you know, to explain to our listeners, what the difference between like an, a surrogate, um, decision maker, guardianship, conservatorship, um, you know, successor trustees. What what are these things? Like, I mean, I think immediately of like the 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 ongoing saga of the Britney Spears conservatorship litigation. Uh, I don't know if we represent her or not, um, but I, I mean, I think of that one as a as an example of you know maybe the process gone sideways that eventually ended up okay. Um, but what are the differences between? Um, surrogate decision makers, um, is that just a general category? And then guardians and conservators are a form of surrogate decision maker. How, how do we understand these legal uh, structures that, that you often run into as part of your practice? Yep. Great question. So we talked about board of directors. We know what a board of director is, right? And we know right. that there can be mechanisms baked into the bylaws for determining whether someone's incompetent. We also know that the bedfellow of that is trust, trust in estate plans, right? Where right. I'm no longer competent to be operating my own trust, there will be a successor trustee named in that instrument to come in and replace me, even when I'm living. Got it. From a personal standpoint, right? Because I'm walking around here on this planet of Earth, transacting and entering into relationships with people, business and personal. They're the easiest thing for me to do to plan for my incapacity is to sign what I'm going to call a healthcare power of attorney or healthcare surrogate form. That allows me, Sarah, to appoint a person of my choice to make decisions for me if I'm not able. The power rests with me. I can also, you know, as long as I'm competent, I can change that person at any time. I can say, today it's Bill. Tomorrow I'm revoking Bill because he irritated me and I'm going to pick out. People that right. do not sign those powers of attorney because they have not engaged in estate planning will need to have a court through a guardianship or conservatorship. So the Brittany of the world that didn't sign a power of attorney, right? Right. Now we now it's too late. She's already allegedly incapacitated. The court agrees. Now there's going to be a surrogate assigned to her, a guardian, right. guardian servitor. And the, the interesting thing about that is under most states' laws, it is easier to be adjudicated disabled than it is to get restored. Think about that for a yeah. It's easier to be adjudicated disabled than it is to get restored, which is, seems well, it's like kind a of like, right? is that because it's, it's harder to prove a negative? You know, I think it, I, I don't know, um, you know, part of me would just think it's somebody got lazy and then it was wash, rinse, repeat across 50 states, right. um, but, you know, or just maternalistic courts. Um, but it's, it's really important to know that if you are in, you know, guardianship can always be avoided if people do a, an, a proper estate plan and have powers of attorney for healthcare and property. Got it. And I, one of the best things you can do for your college bound children, send them off with a power of attorney for healthcare and property. Because one thing I will tell you is just because your mom or dad does not mean you can walk into an ER when your kid leaves a frat party and has ended up there. Right. And walk in and as mom and say, I'm here to help my kid through this medical crisis. I see this over and over and over again. Wow. Um, so everybody who's reached age 18 should have a health care power of attorney and a property power of attorney to allow someone to transact for them. Because if they're already disabled when they determine they need that, it's too late to sign that. You have to go to the court to Got get it. that power. What so Sarah? What is the difference between um, a, a guardian or a conservator um, versus a successor trustee? Because I'm not familiar with very much with what successor trustees are. Um, what is the difference between a successor trustee and a guardian or a conservator? Yeah. So think about um, how you own your property, and so if you own your property in your individual name. So Sarah, under Sarah Severson's name, 
the only person that can make decisions for that property, if I haven't signed a power of attorney for property, is a court-appointed guardian. Okay. Because it's my individual property. If instead the property is owned in a trust that either I've set up or is for my benefit, then the trustee of that trust, the manager of that trust, which probably was me initially, will you know will take over those decisions over the trust property. So it's really a matter of who owns the property. If it's your individual self, then a guardian makes those decisions. If it's a trust that owns the property, then the successor trustee makes those decisions. So that's a determination that's made based on who owns the property at hand. So it could be, Bill, that I own my house in my own name and I need someone to sell my house because I'm never going back to it. And that would be my, you know, a guardian or my property power of attorney that would sell that house. But my bank accounts are in my trust and my trustee is going to have to transact on those. Got it. I guess you know one of the the big the big ones, Sarah, that that I think of is, um, you know, one of the benefits of doing a podcast like this is that people get access to someone like you that they wouldn't normally have or they wouldn't think of. Um, in your experience, what is what is like the biggest or some of the biggest um, roadblocks or obstacles that um, you know a, a board or a client or even the council? encounter in, 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 in this type of counseling? Yeah. I mean, I um, hop on the soapbox for a moment. Probably my biggest pet peeve in this space, dealing with families and their businesses or closely held businesses is the neglect of the human side. Mm. You know, we're all changing. We can be super responsible at 45 and completely irresponsible at 50, right? or vice versa. Um, Things happen in our relationships, in our health, and they're real. They present real challenges to groups, groups that are trying to run financial, successful financial businesses, groups that are trying to function in healthy families. So my goal is to continue to beat this drum and make some of these things speakable. You know, the addiction piece is real. The pandemic brought that out in spades, right? There was a huge uptick in divorces and addictions during the pandemic. And we're still trying to deal with that in boards as trustees after, you know, sitting here two years later, right? right? Because these are issues that have to be addressed. And unfortunately, Lawyers, accountants, you know, we're not professionally trained to, we're not psychiatrists, we're not professionally trained to manage those situations, but we are, I I think it's incumbent upon us to at least raise the issues, you know, in advance is, is always best. So right. if there's one takeaway from this session today, it's take, go back to your desks Take a look at the status quo. What is in your documents? What's not in your documents? And come up with a plan. And Got don't it. wait until you're in the middle of it. I will liken this topic to an analogy I use in the prenup context, which is if you wait until there, the love drug is flowing through the veins to bring up prenups, nobody's going to want a prenup. The right. same thing is here. If you wait until an incapacity event is already happening or has happened, you know, it's, it's late in the game to be coming up with a plan at that time. It won't go over well. So, (laughs) you know, the idea here is stay ahead of it. We all know biologically how we're wired and our bodies are living longer. Why not, you know, pull our heads out of the sand and look at the truth Right of the matter, and then address it because we, as I've demonstrated today, I hope there are solutions to these problems, and yeah. there are tools here, so that it doesn't have to be 
a crisis and it doesn't have to be uncomfortable and it doesn't have to be, you know, result in bloodshed and tears. It can just be a process that's applied uniformly to everyone. So, Sarah, is there anything that Adam and I have not asked you that um, it's still on the table that you'd like to impart? Because I think we're almost at an hour, um, but I don't want to cut you short. So if there's if there's something else you'd, you'd want to get out, I know this has been a very full discussion. I've learned an incredible amount. Um, you know, my takeaway from this seems to be that, as you just said, like pre-planning in almost every aspect of your life averts a lot of crises. Um, and, you know, addressing it now when we're younger, courageous, competent, um, you know, can save not, not only grief for ourselves, but I imagine the people that are collaterally affected, whether it's family members, board members, employees, stockholders, that, you know, a lot of what you're talking about is being a responsible person. That's right. That's exactly right. And um, I, I think the only thing I would add to that, Bill, is that you'll be amazed at how this um, can have a very positive rippling effect. Um, I'll give you one example. So we completed this process, um, this disability planning for a board of directors for a family that I work with about a year and a half ago. And about six months ago, I get a phone call from the patriarch of the family and the family office president who said, I'm so glad we did that because it caused us to revisit our social mm. media rules for our family office, you know, like the guidelines that govern use of social media because someone had kind of gone off the reservation, yeah. was, you know, engaging in behavior and messaging on social media that was not reflective of the culture or spirit of the family office. And it, it, it had a positive sort of cleanup effect on all things for this family office. Right. So rather than say, okay, I'm going to plug my nose and do this project and embark on this, embrace the fact that it can, it can be a best practice that ends up sort of tidying up all things and creates a new set of expectations. And, you know, again, treating other people the way you want to be treated. That's as trite as it sounds and as hiding in plain sight as it is. That's what this exercise is about. Creating mm -hmm. a process so that nobody has unmanaged expectations. Well, I think that's a really fantastic place to conclude. Sarah, thank you so much for joining the Private Company Strategy Podcast. I'm sure we will have you back. <laughs> in the future, but I wanted to just say thank you very much for um, your advice and candor and, and spending this time with us. And, and I think the firm and our clients will, will benefit from this discussion. Thank you. It's truly my pleasure.